Hello, this is Vanessa Skinner, and welcome to the Power of Planning podcast. In this month's episode, I had originally planned to do a deep dive into guardianships. However, my special guest is not available to join us until August. So instead, this month, I would like to focus on back-to-school estate planning. This is that time of year where everyone's getting ready to go back to school for the fall, buying their school supplies, and possibly going off to college for the first time. And that actually presents some estate planning considerations when we talk about college-age children. So I wanted to talk with you about the different types of estate planning documents that you may want to consider getting in place for your young adult children before they head off to college this fall. Over the years, I've helped a number of clients who have come to me asking the question, my kids are now 18 years old. Do they need to have estate planning documents too? And the answer is yes. There are, as we talked about in the past on this podcast, two different purposes for estate planning. One is planning for lifetime incapacity, and one is planning for the transfer of wealth at your death. And most important for college-age children, or any children 18 or older, is the planning for lifetime incapacity. I have had situations where clients have had their children go off to college and experience a medical emergency, unfortunately and they didn't have any estate planning documents in place, and maybe they had one of their roommates from the dorm go with them to the hospital, and when they filled out the hospital form as to who could have access to their health information, they indicated the roommate instead of their parents. And then we had a situation where mom and dad were trying to get information long distance from the hospital, And they were being told that they weren't allowed to release such information to them, despite the fact that they are the parents and at one time were the natural guardians until the child turned 18. So issues like that have prompted parents to come to me and say, what documents should we get in place before they go off to college next month? And the three documents are those that we've talked about in the past for your own planning, and that is a designation of healthcare surrogate, possibly a living will if your child is comfortable with having that document in place, and a durable power of attorney. Now, admittedly, these documents are pretty intense, even for the average adult. So the key here in getting a comfort level for your kids is having an open discussion with them long before you even contact an attorney to actually draft the documents, but making sure they understand what each of these documents is intended to do and why it's a good idea for them to have these documents in place. So we're gonna go over these documents again today just so you can start having those conversations with your children if you think it's appropriate to do so and hopefully get the necessary documents in place before they head off to school this fall. So with the designation of healthcare surrogate, this document in particular is very important because it was what will allow you as parents to continue to make healthcare decisions for your now adult child. And this document takes effect 
when they become incapacitated and unable to make their own decisions. However, here in the state of Florida, there's an option to draft the documents so that it takes effect immediately. So even if they're not incapacitated, you wouldn't be in a position to have access to their protected health information and be able to make medical decisions for them. The document does provide that if they have reached a decision that differs from the healthcare surrogates, then the doctor is going to follow their decision provided they're not incapacitated and have the ability to make healthcare decisions on their own behalf. But this document is really what authorizes you as the parents to continue to be involved in their healthcare decision making and certainly to make decisions on their behalf if it gets to the point where there ever is a medical emergency or a medical condition that precludes them from being able to make those decisions for themselves. Now, in addition to the healthcare surrogate document being in place, to the extent they go to a medical provider where they go to college and they're filling out new patient paperwork, it's always recommended that they list the parents, if they're comfortable doing so, as people who are authorized to receive their protected health information when they're filling out those HIPAA forms. Another healthcare document that is particularly important is the living will. And again, I work with adults who are not always comfortable signing this document. So it may very well be the case that your child is not gonna be comfortable signing this and is not ready to do so. But again, having an open dialogue with them about it is really what is key. So this is the document that if they are incapacitated and they are terminal, or in a persistent vegetative state or end-stage condition, and there's no reasonable degree of medical probability that they will recover from that condition, then by signing this document, they are saying, I do not want you to artificially prolong my life. Give me pain medicine to keep me comfortable, but including tube feeding and intravenous fluids, if that's going to just artificially prolong my life under those circumstances, then I don't want you to do that. Now, I have sat in meetings with uh, children who are going off to college, and when I start going over that document with them, you could see their eyes get wide and, and are really, really a bit overwhelmed by the impact of it. So in addition to you having a conversation with your children, certainly the attorney who prepares the documents for them will do so as well. But have the understanding that that may be one that they're not ready to sign given their age and given their ability to kind of wrap their head around the outcome of that document. And that's fine. Um, really, the healthcare surrogate is what's going to authorize you as the parents to make those end of life decisions for them when the time comes. Hopefully, it'll never come, but if it comes, then you'll be charged with making those decisions for them if they don't have this living will document in place that tells the physicians exactly what they want done under those particular circumstances. I have worked with a client, uh, sadly, who 
had a son who suffered a uh, devastating motor vehicle accident. And he was um, in ICU and was receiving extensive medical care immediately following the accident. And this was a situation where um, she and the father of the child had not married, and they were both um, having to make medical decisions now about his care because he did not have healthcare documents in place that indicated which one of them was going to be the decision maker. And so um, thankfully they, they saw eye to eye on the important decisions that needed to be made, but it was an incredibly stressful time for them. And um, really now the mother has made it her mission to go around and to share the importance of estate planning documents for college age and young adult children in their 20s and and 30s because she wants everyone to understand that it's not an automatic just because you know in situations where parents may be divorced or in situations where um, a man and woman have a child but they never marry it's not automatic that the parent who resides with the adult child is the decision maker. You know, here in Florida, both parents have the legal authority to make those decisions unless there's an advanced directive like a healthcare surrogate or a living will that indicates otherwise, that indicates a particular preference as to one parent over the other or another individual altogether. And so those are the types of situations that hopefully none of you will find yourselves in, but it spotlights the importance of this type of planning. I recall another situation where I met with a couple whose son was going off to school and I had prepared a healthcare surrogate and a living will for the parents request and I sat down with their son and went over the documents and he just simply wasn't ready to sign them. He wasn't comfortable with them and he needed more time to digest them even though they had gone over the documents with him and I explained what they did and why they were important. He just wasn't ready to sign them. And so that was certainly a decision that we all respected, both the parents and myself. And he wound up never signing the documents. And he actually became quite ill um, while in college with a life-threatening condition. And the parents had some difficulty being able to make medical decisions for him and be involved in his care. So those are two situations um, of many where these types of estate planning documents, they demonstrate the importance of them. The other type of estate planning document that may be important for your child to have before going off to college is that of the durable power of attorney. And again, this is the document that authorizes whoever is designated as the agent within the document to stand in your shoes and do all things financial for you. So again, once your child turns 18, 
you no longer have legal authority to make those types of financial decisions to help them establish or manage bank accounts or investment accounts or help them with their employment income or file their taxes for them or, um, you know, if they need government benefits, seek government benefits for them. All the sorts of things, set up retirement accounts, um, all those sorts of decisions that are financial in nature are theirs and only theirs to make once they turn 18. And if they become ill or if they become incapacitated and they can't make those decisions for themselves, in the absence of having a durable power of attorney that authorizes the parents to make those decisions for them, then the parents are faced with having to initiate a guardianship proceeding in order to do so. So this is one particular type of document that is equally as important as the healthcare surrogate because it's on the financial side of things. You know, there's the healthcare decision making, but there's also the financial decision making. And normally when kids are going off to college, they are starting to, in their own right, accumulate assets. You know, they're working at least part time. They're now have a bank account maybe in their own name. If they've got a job, they may be entitled to some retirement benefits. They may start you know, establishing some type of life insurance with their employment. So these are all sorts of things that fall within that financial umbrella that would allow the power of attorney to work with them and on their behalf to help them manage those financial decisions. And again, your child may not be comfortable with the thought of you continuing to be involved, but it's certainly worth having the conversation with them. Another conversation kind of switching back again to the healthcare side of things is what are their thoughts with regard to organ donation? Do they wish to be organ donors? And if so, let's memorialize that not only on their driver's license, but also in the form of a uniform donor card or an organ donor card. Because again, hopefully you'll never find yourself in that situation. But if you do, the last thing you are going to be trying to struggle with is whether or not you want to donate their organs um, so that they can bring life to others. So having that conversation with them and knowing exactly what their wishes are in that regard will be incredibly valuable for both you and them. I know this is some pretty heavy stuff. This is some pretty intense stuff. So you're going to have to make the decision, of course, as the parents, as to whether or not you think your children are ready to have these sorts of discussions. Again, I work with lots of adults who avoid talking about these topics for decades um, before they're comfortable having that type of conversation. But I am seeing an increasing number of parents coming to me largely my existing clients who are saying, okay, you know, my daughter's going off to college. My son's starting a new job. He's in his twenties now. Is it about time that we start setting up some documents for them? And the answer is yes. And certainly once they start accumulating their own assets, it's appropriate for them to get a will in place, particularly if it's a situation where 
it is a divorced parent situation or you know any other type of situation where the parents may not have ever been married because here in Florida if a young adult dies without a will then the presumption is that per intestacy laws they're going the parents are going to equally share in those assets even if one parent was not actively involved in the child's life or even if both parents you know, felt differently about how those assets were to be distributed. And even if the young adult wanted something entirely different, by operation of law, Florida and testacy laws say that if you die without a will and you're not married and you don't have children, then it's going to go up the family tree to your parents and it will be shared equally by them. So Having these conversations now uh, is certainly valuable. And I think as we prepare to go back to school this fall, it's an opportune time to have these discussions. And it's not going to be an easy discussion, admittedly. It may be easy in your family situation or it may be may very well be difficult. But it's certainly worth having the discussion um, regardless. So I wanted to share that with you all this month. And then I also kind of wanted to um, tie up some other loose ends from prior podcasts that I've done this year and give um, some updates that were recently in the news. So in the first episode of this podcast, when I talked about what is an estate plan and why do I need one, I spotlighted some examples of various celebrities who did not do proper planning with regard to their estates. And one of the celebrities that I spoke about was the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. She passed away in 2018 after battling cancer. And believe it or not, here we are five years later and we're finally getting a determination as to what was her operative will. Just this month, a jury found that a will, which was found in her couch after her 2018 death, is a valid Michigan will. And this was a dispute that was going on between three of her children. Aretha Franklin had four children. One child is special needs and he's subject to a guardianship and was not involved in this will dispute. But um, one of her three sons, three other sons, had argued that a 2010 will was the operative will because that was locked in a cabinet at her home in Detroit. Whereas her two other sons argued that papers dated in 2014 overrode that will. So a jury deliberated for less than an hour after a pretty brief trial, and they determined their verdict was such that the 2014 will that was found under her sofa cushions was in fact the operative document. Um, It had scribbles, it was, you know, it was not typewritten, it was a handwritten will, it had hard to decipher uh, passages in it, 
but it was discovered um, about a year after she passed away by her niece, who was originally appointed her personal representative or executor, and she had been scouring her aunt's home trying to find any important documents that needed to be located, and she happened to find this handwritten will tucked underneath the sofa cushions. So the lawyers for the two sons who were proponents of that will argued that just because it was found under the couch cushions didn't mean it was any less significant um, or uh, operative in nature. And then with regard to the difference between the wills and, and which you know will directed what, but basically the, the jury found that the 2014 version that was signed by Aretha Franklin um, was in fact her official will. So there's still gonna be discussions over whether some provisions of the 2010 will should be fulfilled um, and whether one son who was named as executor under the 2010 will should be allowed to be appointed executor. But under the, uh, you know, the main differences between the 2010 and the 2014 versions, they both indicate that her four sons would share income from her music and her copyrights. But under the 2014 will, um, one son and grandchildren would get his mother's main home um, in Michigan, which was valued at about a million dollars when she died, but is worth much more today because of appreciation. And then the older will um, said that two of the sons had to take business classes and get a certificate or a degree in order to benefit from the estate, and that provision is notably absent from the 2014 will. So although there are some differences, now you know the question becomes, how does the court go about administering the 2014 document, um, since that's the will that the jurors have determined to be her official will? Um, but I, you know, so there's still more updates to come on this case. The probate proceeding is nowhere near concluded by any means. Um, and despite the fact that it's been up in the air over which will is the proper will or the will that is to be probated, they have continued to do their best in trying to administer the estate in paying the taxes and doing what needs to be done. Um, despite there was this big question mark looming over this case. But there's still going to be lots of other questions in the coming months. Um, but it's very important to note that because of the apparent lack of formal estate planning that she did and having her estate organized in a particular fashion, we are now five years out from her passing and the probate proceeding is still underway. This is exactly what folks try to avoid when doing proper estate planning, um, particularly when we're talking about celebrities who have significant wealth like Aretha Franklin did. So just yet another example of the power of planning. I wanted to give you all the update on what happens when there is a failure to plan um, including when celebrities fail to plan. 
And then the other areas that I wanted to touch on are those that we didn't have an opportunity to go into during the May episode of the podcast when I welcomed Marty Salt on as my guest and we talked about legal issues facing seniors today. As you may recall, Marty's parents both needed long-term care and her father first went into a nursing home. And so we were looking at how to go about qualifying him for Medicaid benefits here in the state of Florida. And in their particular situation, it was determined that transferring assets over to her mother and basically getting everything out of his name with the exception of the bank account where he would receive his social security payments worked best for them. And then the mother really didn't have a lot in the way of other assets. So she was still able to have her husband qualify for Medicaid because she was below what we call here in Florida, the community spousal resource allowance. But in some instances, that is not a viable option in terms of Medicaid planning because there is significant wealth that's being transferred from one spouse to another, or perhaps the well spouse or community spouse as we call them, has significant wealth of their own. And now they are going to be well above the community spousal resource allowance. So in some situations, when we have a married couple and one spouse is needing long-term care benefits in the form of Medicaid, we look at other planning strategies. And these were the strategies that we weren't really able to get into in the May episode. So I wanted to just kind of close that loop for you all and mention these at this time. The first is spousal refusal. So the concept and the approach is in part the same in that we transfer assets over from the ill spouse to the well spouse. And again, when I talk about these planning techniques, I'm talking about planning techniques that are available for Medicaid eligibility in the state of Florida. If you reside in another state, regardless honestly of where you reside, you need to meet with an attorney who can advise you on what options and planning strategies are available in your state, and more importantly, what planning strategies are appropriate for you and your family given your particular circumstances. I always say on this podcast, there is no one size fits all when it comes to planning any type of planning that I talk about on this podcast. So it's very important that you meet with a professional and get the guidance that's appropriate for you and your family's circumstances. But with spousal refusal, it's a situation where the one spouse transfers all assets into the well spouse's name. Because the well spouse is now well over the community spousal resource allowance, the ill spouse still can't qualify unless one of two things happens, spousal refusal or the party's divorce. In the case of spousal refusal, the well spouse basically signs the document that says they refuse to provide any financial support for their ill spouse. Here in Florida, you are not required to financially support your spouse while you all are alive. And so the state of Florida can't force you to do that if you 
hereby declare in writing that you are not willing to pay for the expenses of your ill spouse who's now having to go into a nursing home or some other type of long-term care setting. When you sign that document, there is a risk, we have not seen this happen, but there is a risk where basically the ill spouse is assigning their rights over to the state of Florida so that the state of Florida could potentially go after the well spouse when the ill spouse dies and seek to be made whole for all of those benefits that they had to pay because the well spouse refused to provide care for the ill spouse. Now, that is something that the state could pursue under the law here in Florida, but we have not within our elder law community, all of the elder law attorneys in the state um, that are part of the elder, you know, elder law section of the Florida bar, we often talk about the fact that we've not seen a particular circumstance where that has occurred as of yet. Um, but Medicaid does have that right. So once all of the assets are transferred and the well spouse says, I refuse to provide care for my ill spouse. Now, everything in the well spouse's column does not count towards the ill spouse's eligibility. The ill spouse essentially stands on their own two feet. And the state of Florida does not look or does not consider the well spouse's assets when they're determining if the ill spouse is eligible. Now, with that being said, the well spouse's assets still have to be disclosed during the application process, which I know seems a bit odd since the well spouse is entitled to keep all those assets, but the state of Florida still wants the information to be disclosed. So that's spousal refusal. That is frequently utilized here in the state of Florida when we have one spouse trying to qualify for benefits. The other option is the party's divorce. So it's, you may have heard of something called a Medicaid related divorce and all of the financials are worked out so that the ill spouse basically has minimal assets and minimal income so that they can then otherwise qualify for benefits. Now, keep in mind that if spousal, spousal refusal or if a divorce occurs, then the community spouse is not going to have the benefit of the ill spouse's income. You may recall that in the May episode, I spoke about the fact that Marty's mother was able to receive all of her father's income, essentially, and there was very little that had to be paid to the nursing home because we rerouted or diverted his income over to her mother. That is because she did not do spousal refusal. That is because she was still married to him at the time and there was no divorce planning involved. And she had the community spousal resource allowance and we made sure her assets were below that. So if a spouse, a well spouse, exercises spousal refusal, or if the parties divorce, for purposes of enabling the ill spouse to become financially eligible, then the well spouse will not get the ill spouse's income diverted over to them. So that just means that 
There will be certain allowable deductions, but then any income that remains will go to the nursing home. So there'll be a personal needs allowance, which is now increased to $160 a month for the ill individual Medicaid applicant. And then if there are other deductions that are allowed for health insurance premiums, um, but that money is not going over to the spouse any longer. The other program that I was not able to touch on in the May episode that I also wanted to share with regard to Medicaid planning strategies is something called the transition program. I did speak about the fact that individuals who are not going into a skilled nursing facility and are instead seeking long-term home and community-based services, either in an assisted living facility setting or in a setting at home with home health care providers, we talked about the fact that there's a lengthy wait list of over 30,000 people trying to get those types of long-term care benefits here in the state of Florida. One thing that I wanted to share with you in connection with that is something called the transition program. So for individuals who, let's say, suffer a fall or some other type of incident, They go into a hospital, they're there for more than three qualifying nights for something more than observational status, and then they get released to a nursing home for rehab. If while they're in the nursing home, we apply for Medicaid benefits, and at least one day during their stay in the nursing home, they receive those benefits, then if the physicians deem it appropriate, we can ask for them to be in the transition program. So with the transition program, they start off in a skilled setting and then they transition to a less restrictive setting, whether it's an assisted living facility or whether it's going home and having home health care provided. But the physician, the attending physician who's overseeing the individual's care has to be on board with the fact that yes, that person is going to be able to transition out of the nursing home in X number of days or X number of months. And if they are awarded that Medicaid coverage with that understanding, then when they leave the facility, the benefits follow them home or the benefits follow them to an assisted living facility. And they have effectively diverted the entire waitlist process. So that's important to keep in mind when there is a situation where you're going into rehab and it's really intended to be more of a short-term situation and not necessarily a long-term residency within a skilled nursing home. So that again is the transition program. And then one final planning tool that I wanted to mention that we didn't have time to cover in the May episode is the personal service contract. And this again is something that is permitted in the state of Florida as a Medicaid planning strategy. And it is a situation where we look at an individual's age and we look at their life expectancy according to the life expectancy tables that are set forth by the state of Florida and the Social Security Administration. And based on the number of years that they are expected to live and based on the needs that they have in terms of services that they require, beyond those within a nursing home um, or an assisted living or home health care setting, then 
they can hire someone and pay that person in the form. It's, they could structure it in a number of different ways, but most commonly we see it done as a lump sum payment to an individual to provide certain services to them over a period of time, basically for the balance of their life. And the contract has to be very specific, has to outline what types of services will be provided, and good documents have to be kept to re record and evidence exactly what services are in fact being provided or have in fact been provided in the event Medicaid ever requests to see records or audits the applicant's benefits. And so with the personal services contract, a lot of times there will be a family member who is rendering care to the individual particularly when they're not yet in a nursing home and they're in an assisted living facility or at home and they're providing services to them in the form of grocery shopping and transportation, taking them to and from the doctor's office and maybe making their meals and cleaning their house and paying their bills and doing all those sorts of things that their loved one can no longer do on their own behalf. Those are the types of personal services that an individual can provide and be compensated for those services. And so by doing it in this form of a lump sum contract, and again, there are various ways that this can be done. And again, you should speak with a legal professional as to what may be appropriate for you and your family circumstances. But if it's done as a lump sum, then there's a lump sum amount that's paid to the caregiver all at once, all on the front end. Um, and that effectively reduces the Medicaid applicant's countable assets. And it's not seen as a gift from, for example, a parent to a child. It's seen as an ill parent paying their adult child, for example, to provide them with care. Now, there are some tax implications with that type of planning. And again, you should always consult with a CPA as well to the extent there are tax considerations with any particular planning strategy, but that is considered taxable income to the caregiver who is rendering the service. And so when it's done as a lump sum, for instance, that can be a tax hit to that individual. And so that's why there are other methods and mechanisms for doing personal services contracts and maybe not doing it in the form of a lump sum, but other strategies that can be employed. But it is a tool, it is a widely used tool and one that can be very valuable depending on the circumstances. So just wanted to tie up some of those loose ends and give you some pertinent updates that were in the news in this potpourri of this podcast, in addition to having the discussion with you about the back to school basics. Thank you again for joining me, and I look forward to further discussion about the power of planning.